guest today is a Portland icon with his history working for and owning Music Millennium, a record store and service since 1969 with his involvement since 1984. This was an awesome conversation about vinyl, eight tracks, cassettes, CDs, Napster, iPods, and a lot of the music that has happened in and before our lifetimes. And while we didn't talk about it, he is also the person to coin and initiate the local motto, Keep Portland Weird. I had a great time talking with this guy. Here is my friend, Terry Courier. What in your life led you down the path of this musical journey? Well, I grew up um, not listening to the radio, not really buying records. Um, I started playing music in fourth grade. Started with flutophone that summer. I took up violin. Um, middle of my fifth grade year, I decided I didn't want to play violin because the other violinists made noises that bothered my ears. So I took up the clarinet and I went that approach. And I spent most of my free time either in the outdoors or practicing. I'd go to summer music programs and play for hours and hours and hours every day. Um, when I was 16, I got a motorcycle. And after about six, seven months in the Northwest and the rain and snow, I decided that it was better to get a car. So I got a car, had a radio in it. I started listening to radio here in Portland. Um, Kissin', which was an AM station, and um, K-Van, which was an underground AM station. They were a daytimer. They were only on when it was light outside. Um, so they came on when the sun came up, and they went off the air when the sun went down. So the, it would just be radio silence? Um, if you tuned to that station, there was just nothing there? Yeah. Huh. And, and after the show, they always did this Catholic show called The Rosary. And so you could hear everybody talking in Latin, you know, if you continued to listen to the station. <laughs> but three months later, due to hearing the radio here, I went to my first concert, which was at the Memorial Coliseum, with Leon Russell and the Shelter People. And within two weeks of that show, I applied for a job in a record store. Um, that one event made you decide you wanted to go into music. I mean, both the opening act, which was a band from Texas called Knit Singer, um, with a female drummer who inspired me to go out and buy a drum set, too, nice. a couple weeks later. Um, but Leon Russell was this charismatic guy with very long white hair. Um, he played piano, he'd jump up on his piano, play electric guitar, had a 10 piece band with backup singers and everything. And it was just inspiring. So I applied for this job at a new record store that was opening up at the Jansen beach shopping center that was going to be opening up that next month. And I told the guy, I didn't know much about recorded music, um, 
but I was enthusiastic about music, and they gave me a shot. And so how old were you? I just turned 17 years old. 17, and this was what year? 1972. 1972. And so in 1972, in record stores, what what were the products you could buy? Uh, it was mostly vinyl, but 8-track tapes were out there. Um, it was the end of pre-recorded reel-to-reel tapes were still out there. And it was very close to the beginning of the cassette. So how do you, do you have any idea? Do you remember how much uh, an 8-track cost? Oh, 8-tracks were around 4 or $5. Okay. And I'm just trying to figure out what the benefit would be to buying an 8-track over vinyl. I mean, I guess you could play an 8-track in the car, but not... That was the advantage. Yeah. I mean, I had an 8-track player in my car, and so I bought 8-tracks. Um Atrax was a clunky kind of configuration of music. Uh, you had a button on there to go to four different tracks on the eight track. Whoa. <clears throat> so, I mean, if you didn't like the song you were listening to right then, you hit a button, you go to a song on the next track. Uh, didn't like that, go to the next one. That's, I mean, that's better than a cassette. I didn't know you could do that. Uh it it is, but eight tracks had their drawbacks, and you know once an eight track tape despooled the tape on there, it was a real pain in the butt to try to get it functional again. Yeah, my dad told me he'd be driving down the road and it would just do something crazy, and he'd just pull it out and he'd have to throw it away. It like wasn't worth the effort to put it back together. I, I saw a number of eight tracks by the side of the road where I'm sure. People got frustrated with the broken eight-track tape and just chucked it. Yeah. Yeah. So eight tracks and vinyl and then cassettes. Cassettes were like, they were early 80s, right? Or were they in the 70s? No, they they started in the the 70s. Around, seems like around 73 um, in the very beginning. Cassettes were interesting um, in... The around 1980, um, cassettes were about 25% of the sales of the industry, and the other part was vinyl. And then the Walkman came out, and in one year, cassettes went from 25% of the industry to 51% of the industry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's kind of like the 80s version of the iPod. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people like portable music. And another thing that happened at that time, the Jane Fonda workout cassette came out. And so all of a sudden, people are going, we can exercise and listen to music. And then the joggers and runners started putting the Walkman on. They were going out doing their jogs and runs. And it was a better experience than hearing cars and birds and Things of yeah, that. but it must have been so clunky to have this big old box that's like strapped <laughs> on your side. It 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 was, and so you know we we've seen a transformation over the years of going even more portable to the iPods and people's phones and. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, I, I went down this Wikipedia wormhole the other day and I was looking up all the models of iPods and I forgot about the shuffle. You remember the little oh, tiny shuffle? Yeah. Yeah, it was just like, I mean, the size of, you know, like uh, a stack of quarters, basically. You could put that anywhere. You still had to have your headphones connected, but that that was pretty cool. I, I never owned one, but uh, the fact that you could just basically have this tiny little thing anywhere and have 40 or 50 songs or whatever... That's pretty oh, cool. People love that concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So it's the 70s and you're working at the the record store. And the record store was here in Portland? Yep. It was called DJ Sound City. And uh, it was uh, the guys that had it uh, started in Seattle. And this was their fourth store. At one point, they got up to 27 stores in the Northwest and wow. Hawaii. And so I'm working in the store, and I started in September of 72. And then in January, um, I became assistant manager of the store. And After only a couple months, they made you assistant? And I was the youngest person on staff. You must have been killing it. <laughs> I, I was loving it. Um, I was going to go to college on music scholarships. And uh, I can remember my counselor bringing me in in January and going, hey, you're not going to get these scholarships if you don't get your applications in. And I go, I'm 17 years old, making $2.25 an hour, and now an assistant manager of a record store. It doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, college sounds like it sucks compared to that. <laughs> it became my university. And I got out of school at noon. And I was able to work 40 hours a week. And every dime went to music. Unless it was gas to get to my job or to a concert. Um, every dime went to music. So I bought about 665 albums that first year. Whoa. Granted, a bunch of them were used. But, and I fell in love with everything. And I had no peer pressure. So I was buying rock and classical and african witchcraft music and country <laughs> just getting it all yeah and I, I imagine the selection was pretty good at the store uh selection was good at the store but then like the third week i worked <laughs> excuse me the third week i worked at the store um this girl that I was going out with that worked in the store says, I got a surprise for you tonight. And I was thinking something different. Uh, she took me to Music Millennium. And I discovered, wow, the store's got all these other titles we don't have in the store. Uh, Music Millennium was importing product from Europe at the time. And so there was all these bands that weren't being released in the United States. And it was like, it was a whole nother palette for me to pick music from. Yeah, I think people now don't realize how accessible everything is. I mean, it, you're just kind of, I mean, like my kids are a good example. They have access to every piece of recorded music ever. Some kid in his bedroom, something that got put out 40 years ago, like it's all on the internet. But in that time period, in 1972... You couldn't hear music no. unless it was on the radio or in the record store, right? 
those were your two major places to find out things. And you went to the record store to talk to the people that worked at the record store because they were a little more in the know than anything out there. I mean, you only had a couple of sources at that time to be able to find out about new music. And it was, you know, something like Rolling Stone magazine that came out twice a month or any of the import magazines, um, you know, which when you could get your hands on there and cream and circus magazine. I used to go down to the magazine rack and just look at all the magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't buy all the magazines cause then that meant I couldn't buy as much music. <laughs> so <laughs> I'd be caught in the aisles reading articles. <laughs> and the, the people who are in charge at music millennium at deciding which, foreign and imported albums they wanted to get, they would just somehow pick and choose and order those items and maybe get what, like 10 copies at a time? Uh, it all depended on the title. The guy who started Music Millennium, Don McLeod and his wife, Lorene McLeod, they started it with Lorene's brother, Danny Lissy and his wife, Patty. And about a year later, Patty and Danny left. Uh, Don was working for Tektronix, and they had this program that if you came up with a sound business idea, they would let you borrow money in advance from your retirement program. Hmm. And that's how he started Music Millennium. And he started it in in only 800 square feet of the building. Uh, A year and a half later, he left Tektronix and he came over and expanded the store into another part of the building. But he went to Europe and he set up distribution deals with all the European distributors. Mm-hmm. And at that time, even the the big major companies like Capital Records and Columbia Records and Warner Brothers, um, the Europeans in the United States distributors they competed with each other. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Don was Don felt American vinyl was inferior to the rest of the world. Because they used recycled vinyl here in the States huh. to make most of their pressing. Where in Europe and Japan, um, Germany, they were using pure vinyl. And so the sound quality was usually better. So he set up the store at that time. One side of the store was domestic and one side of the store was import. There was a who section on one side of the store, a who section on the other side of the store. Um, But while he was there, he also found out there's all this unreleased music that hasn't been coming out in the States. And he started bringing in a lot of German um bands and uk bands um and turning on the customers to those things i mean when i was working at dj sound city sometimes a sales rep would come in and goes well here's this new release here by barkley james harvest you need to pay attention on it on it because Music Millennium has already sold 450 <laughs> copies of it as an import. <laughs> wow, wow. So, 
Hang on one second. I'm gonna derail this to shut this light off. It keeps flickering. Okay, so talking about the, the, the quality of the vinyl that's getting pressed, uh, a number of, year, of years ago when I used to record my own stuff a lot more, I thought it would be really cool to press some music that I had written just because to have your own piece of vinyl that had your own recorded music on it would be so cool. And I was going to do the album art. I was going to do the whole thing. And the most expensive part is creating the master, which I don't even know what it's made out of, some sort of metal. Yeah. And yeah. and then they take that master, which I can't remember, it was like a thousand or two thousand dollars to make the one master. Then you buy the vinyl and it was like a quarter per piece of vinyl or maybe 10 cents per like that's not the expensive part. It's creating the master. It is, but now vinyl has Vinyl itself has went up extremely high. Um, petroleum prices have went up. And it, a lot of the vinyl is made in Europe. So you have a lot of shipping costs involved. Um, and if you make 180 gram vinyl, which is a lot heavier, you got to make heavier album covers too so it doesn't rip through the cover mm -hmm. so then you have extra costs there so you know the vinyl costs today are way way up from what they used to be if you had to guess let's say to buy a piece of vinyl right now is twenty dollars per album how much do you think the cost is to the manufacturer maybe like 15 no the the manufacturing cost the actual manufacturing of the product it's probably going to be half that okay well uh, but you got royalties involved and you've got shipping involved yeah. and you've got you know i mean we have a, a pressing plant in milwaukee oregon here hmm. and uh, it's called cascade and anybody local that's talking about making vinyl i tell them go to cascade because you're going to save you know, a couple bucks per record in shipping, just mm. trying to get it here. Mm. Yeah, as that art dies out, it becomes more expensive to produce because there aren't as many people producing it. Same thing goes with, I went to recording school in 2005, and so I learned how to record bands through massive analog consoles onto two-inch tape. Mm -hmm. And... To buy two-inch tape now to do that, it's so expensive. I think there's only one company that still manufactures it. People can record digitally, and they don't have to always go to a professional studio and pay the money to record that two-inch tape. So there's there's not a demand for it, but the only company that produces it is right. able to sell it for a lot more money. So it just becomes more expensive. And it sounds like vinyl is kind of the, the same deal. Vinyl is the same thing. And, you know, during the pandemic, we saw vinyl prices going up, um, you know, and we ran into all kinds of problems because some of this vinyl was coming from Europe and it comes over on boats. And, you know, they didn't have enough workers on the East Coast for the boats to dock. So, you know, boats were sitting out in the harbor for like, two weeks before yeah. they can unload their cargo to get them here. 
There was a number of releases, one in particular, the Floating Points album with Pharaoh Saunders. You know, we were very excited about that, but we couldn't get all our initial stock because it was sitting on a boat. Hmm. Yeah, that was a big deal. I think they, they're still having issues with that. Not quite as bad, but uh, so going back to it, it being in the store and ordering the, the imports, did, was there ever a situation where you would have the American pressed copy and the European pressed copy and uh, Don McLeod? Don McLeod, yeah. Could you? Could he or anyone else take those two and compare them? Like, oh yeah, very much so. Um, I mean, there was a certain amount of horror stories. You know, some pressing plants were better than others. Uh, but I had people bring back vinyl from time to time with little paper bits. You know, in the vinyl, uh, a fingernail in the vinyl. Um, I mean, there was. There was a certain amount of that going on because, you know, vinyl was huge in the 70s. And in the 70s, especially, the record industry just kept going up and up and up and up and up. And, uh, you know, they just couldn't keep up with everything. Some of these major distributors, they had their own pressing plants. And if they ran out of something that day, they could potentially add a third shift to work overnight to make more copies, to get ready to ship a day later. Mm-hmm. Um, now the majors don't own any of that pressing plant. When vinyl went away around 79, or excuse me, 89 to 90, um, all those companies got rid of their pressing equipment. You know, probably ended up uh, down at the junkyard. And uh, um, one of the problems today with vinyl has been there's not been enough pressing equipment. And just up till recently, all the pressing equipment that was being used for this new renaissance of vinyl was old equipment Hmm. from 60s, 70s, 80s. And uh, now they're making new equipment. And... They're making more pressing plants around the world. Uh, hopefully, there can be a little bit of catch-up. But um, the supply chain is very broken. If you want to go get a vinyl record made right now, it's a 10-month wait hmm. from when you put the order in until you get that finished goods. Wow. That's a long time. You got you to really plan for it. I mean, I guess... A majority of the major releases, they probably are waiting that long anyway, uh, or close to. Yeah, but nobody can plan properly on these things. You know, you, you take a new band. I mean, like this this last couple of years, a band called Dry Cleaning came out, and they got all kind of great press. And the, so the label ran out of all the vinyl. And so then they have to go put an order in, and then you got to wait. Yeah. You know, to... <laughs> For 10 months. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what does a band do? You know, you, you just lost that that momentum mm-hmm. that you had to, you know, propel the, the band up to another level. Yeah. Yeah, the, the cool thing about vinyl to me, 
And I, I grew up, when I started listening to music, it was mainly on CDs. My, my parents had some vinyl, and so that's how I discovered Led Zeppelin uh, 4 or Zoso or whatever you want to call it, was on vinyl. But everything else I listened to was, was CD. But the thing I appreciate so much about vinyl, when people were producing with that format in mind, uh, you take the Beatles, for example. There's four or five songs per side. And so Lennon and McCartney and Harrison would decide whose song opened, what was in between, and what closed it. And it's like it's like a little story each it's, side. And then you flip it over and you got to start the story over again. There's so much more thought going into each side. Uh, there definitely is. Each side is an experience. And a lot of people have favorite sides of a record. Um, you know, and great records, you've got to listen all the way through um you know vinyl was the perfect time amount for a human to listen to music with undivided attention 20 minutes or less you can get somebody to sit in front of a side of a record and they'll concentrate when it got to cds people started making 50 60 75 minute cds you know They'd get into part of the CD, and then they'd wander off to the bathroom, wander to the kitchen. <laughs> so they weren't one in one with that music experience of just listening to the stereo and being right there. Yeah, and I think people started putting more of the garbage on the like maybe the the stuff that they would have left out. The cutting room floor stuff. Yeah, it's like, well, we got 74 minutes, let's put let's put those other two songs that we've been sitting on for 3 years that nobody really likes. Let's put those in at track 14 and 15. Yeah, so it it was a different experience. And then with CDs, I mean, really it became about having one single and because they typically weren't going to sell them as singles, you had to buy the whole CD. And so you're paying $20, $25 for one song. And there's all this other crap on there. And on, on top of that, to propel the one song idea, MTV came along. And MTV kind of ruled the, the, the decade... Um, where, you know, a song would come on MTV, they would play it over and over and over and over, and somebody saw it, and, you know, between the audio and the imagery, you know, it motivated them to go down and buy that whole album. And some of those albums weren't great albums. <laughs> and you'd go, oh, what, the rest of the record isn't this good, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and... You know, it, it became a very singles-driven industry for a long time. They made CD singles. Um, back to now with the vinyl renaissance and people buying records again, there's really been a change to listening to whole albums again. Mm -hmm. um, not everybody, though. I mean... There's a lot of songs out there in popular music that people are hearing on the internet or a radio station that's propelling them to go buy an album. But I think there is a lot more thought put into 
albums again. Yeah. You know, because making an album is art, not just the music part. The album cover is important. I mean, I used to get an album, go home, put it on the stereo. And I think, you know, people treated their records better than they treated CDs in many cases because they had to be really careful with the record so it would play over and over again very right. good. Um, CDs were in this little plastic box and they could just kind of toss it to the side. So, you know, they, they take care in putting it on the turntable. They come back, they sit down, they listen to this record, and then many times they're sitting there interfacing with the album cover, um, which is a very, very important part of the, the whole album experience. And then also reading the liner notes. Um, I used to know all the producers and engineers and guest stars. Mm -hmm. A lot of records I bought that very first year, I'd see names on a record that were on another record that I liked, and I go, hey, might be worth taking a chance on this one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that part is very cool. I... I would appreciate so much having those CD booklets that you could, I mean, that was, that was listening is one thing and that's fantastic, but to have the, the visual portion and you get to, you get like an insight to the musician's mind, you know, maybe they wanted to write all the lyrics, maybe they didn't want to write any lyrics and they just want to put a bunch of weird pictures. Uh, sometimes like, Tool is a great example. Yeah. Lateralis, the artwork that they had Alex Gray do, where it's transparent and it overlays the inside of the human body. That shit is crazy. That's so awesome. And then they had the one, uh, 10,000 Days, yeah. with the um, the glasses that made things pop out 3D. That stuff's incredible. And it's different now. And I don't want to be the guy that's like, everything sucks now. It used to be awesome, you know? But... <laughs> I look at my kids and they listen to Apple Music and they listen to Spotify and they've got AirPods and there's there's a picture of the album when they're listening but they don't get liner notes, they don't get no. lyrics. There's so much other stuff that they're missing out on. That's that's kind of a bummer. No, it it definitely is. I mean, the album listening experience is you know, something you you can't replace on the internet. Yeah, I mean, look at uh Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. Oh. You pop that out, there's like a cutout for a mustache. Uh they got they got some cool stuff in there. That was 1967. I I can only imagine what it was like to go to a store and buy that on vinyl and take it home and listen to it. It's like an experience. Yeah, I mean, packaging was re really important, you know. Pink Floyd with Dark Side of the Moon, you got all kind of cool stuff inside and a poster. Yeah. Um, you know, Paul McCartney put goodies in records. I mean, it's all part of the experience. And I, I think that in some respects, even though this is way, way different, but K-pop music right now is very, very popular with young people. And... Um, most of it's just coming out on CD, but they're putting it in oversized packaging 
and you get trading cards and stickers and all this stuff in there. And those are the main attractions there to a lot of that K-pop stuff. So, yeah, I'll pay an extra 10 bucks and get all this cool stuff. Yeah, my daughter is deep into all that. And I had never heard of a bunch of these bands. And she's talking about them all the time. And then I'll see... Uh, billboard charts or like nationwide uh, Spotify listens for 2022 and all these bands she's listening to are at the top and I have no idea who they are but then we went to Target the other day and uh, I think it's Stray Kids they have this massive box set that you can get and she wants that so bad for Christmas. It's got the playing cards in it. Oh yeah. <laughs> but, but the thing is it also has CDs Yes. I don't have a way to play a CD. Oh, you don't? <laughs> no, I got rid of all that stuff. Oh. I have a record player, but I don't have anything that'll play a CD. So I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at something like that for her because she loves that aspect of it, which is cool. It reminds me of being a kid and getting something like that, you know? Yeah, definitely. So, and a lot of those K-pop bands, I mean, they're starting to tour the United States and they're some of the biggest grossing tours out there. I mean... They, there's a buzz on them out there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a money generating machine and it's, it's good for a lot of the people at the top. I always wonder if they're making any money. Cause you, you, you've heard these stories about, uh, I forget what the guy's name was, but he managed the Backstreet Boys and InSync, and he had them sign these horrendous contracts where they barely made any money and he just was raking it in. Yeah, that's a that's something that's happened through time. I mean, there was a lot of '60s rock bands that signed deals, and they got a, like a weekly allowance yeah. from the label. And if the record started selling really big, it didn't give them any more money, but it lined the pockets of the managers and the record companies. Yeah, well, and the the tax rate in Britain at some point over the Beatles career was 93%. So they, they're making so much money and just paying all of it in taxes. Yeah. But they were still coming out with a lot of money on the end because they, <laughs> they were selling a lot yeah, of records. They did. All right. But they did get screwed in a lot of ways. Um, uh, so going back to the seventies, you're working in the, um, DJ, tell me again, DJ, DJ Sound City. DJ Sound City. You go to Music Millennium, you see their selection, and then you decided that you wanted to be a part of that? No, they, they, they became this regular record store I would shop at. Um, when I was at DJ's, as, as soon as I graduated from high school, DJ sent me to their Seattle store. I was there for five months. Then they sent me over to their Hawaii store and I was there for a year. And then when I was 19 years old, they sent me to Everett, Washington and I managed my first store there. And when I was 20, they sent me back to Jansen beach to manage the Jansen beach store. And that's how I ended up back in Portland. You had no say in where you went. They're just like, Hey, Terry, well, you gotta go. No, I mean, I, I could have turned them down, but you know, I was just an enthusiastic kid that goes, yeah, that sounds great. That sounds great. <laughs> yeah, but man, you were in Hawaii and you didn't want to stay? Um, The cost of living in Hawaii 
was very, very expensive. Yeah. My vinyl buying habits had to get cut down a lot <laughs> when I was in Hawaii. When I went back to the mainland, um, it, I was able to save money and buy records at the same time. And I, I felt it was great. Well, and were you taking all 665 albums with you every time you moved? I sure did, and they just kept growing. Yeah. And, uh, wow. Yeah, that's like that's a truck right there, just your vinyl. <laughs> okay, so you're bouncing around. They're sending you to all these different places, and as you went to each place, you just kept kind of climbing the ladder until you became the manager in Everett, you said? Yeah. Yeah? And uh, so I worked for DJs until 1984, and DJs was – they sold some of their stores, and they – shut some of them down and i went to work for the company who bought some of the stores and it was quite evident within a couple of months that this company didn't care about music they were really into selling stereos um, both home and car stereos and when i told them i didn't have the right inventory in my store they said oh you got plenty of those and they just, they looked at CDs as, and vinyl, as add-on items to the stereos. I see. Just like working in a shoe store, uh, sell them some shoes, but make sure you sell them some shoe polish and shoe laces too. Yeah. And so after about five months of working for them, I gave them a two months notice. I had no idea what I was going to do next in life. And two weeks later, I got a call from a guy from the RCA distribution offices in Seattle. And he said, you know Don McLeod? And I go, oh, the guy that used to own Music Millennium. Because Don sold Music Millennium in 1979. And it was now in 1984. And... What turned out is <clears throat> the middle ownership was going to file bankruptcy. And they told Don about it. They owed him two more payments. He financed the sale. And they said, we're going to pay you these, and then we're going to file bankruptcy. And Don didn't want to see his baby go, so he assumed like a half a million dollars in debt. He got the, the building at Burnside. They had expanded Music Millennium to four stores at that time. Um, and so on this guy's tip, I went over there and uh, applied for a job. I set up an interview, never got interviewed. And after about an hour, I went around looking for this Don McLeod character. And he goes, oh, you can leave your application if you want to be a clerk. Uh, I already know who I'm going to have a store manager. So I left. And then two weeks later, I get a call from him. And he goes, you still interested in that job? I go, yes. So we met the next night, and we played like 210 questions. Um, and most of it was music trivia, you know. It's like, do you know Fairport Convention? And I would name all the people that used to be in the band, all the people that were currently in the band. And we went through that whole thing. And the next day he called, he goes, you want the job? And I go, yeah. 
I go, when do you want me to start? And he goes, can you start today? And I go, <laughs> well, I got to give these guys notice. <laughs> so the next two weeks, I uh, worked both places and uh, went over to Millennium. And we spent the next three years, you know, figuring out how to pay off the debts. Uh, nobody had sold to Music Millennium in at least nine months. And some people hadn't sold to them in a year. You mean distributors? Yeah, distributors. So the stock it, was pretty low then, yeah? The stock was terrible. And uh, we had, I had a good reputation, and Don had a good reputation from before. And we got on and made a lot of phone calls. Um, they gave us little tiny credit lines. I mean, not enough to fill up the store by any means. So we shut down two of the four locations and subleased them out. We kept this location and one on Northwest 21st and Johnson. And um, the next three years, we were able to um, pay off the debt. And uh, it, it was a great time in the industry. I mean, there was a lot of music going on. Um, why, why wouldn't people... Why wouldn't the distributors give you guys product? They thought you were going to go under and they didn't want to lose money? They they were already owed so much money from Music Millennium. They didn't want to take another chance. Or, you know, it was a big risk for them to, to give us more credit line when there was this much owed. But in good faith, we took care of it all. And, uh, you know, everything went up all the way up until digital downloading. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so take me through like some stuff that happened in that time period because I think it was 82 that Thriller came out. Yeah. I mean, that had to be huge, right? I was working at DJ still at that time and the record industry was actually taking a little crest down and Thriller came around and it changed everything. Um, I mean, it, 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 it was absolutely amazing how many Michael Jackson records we sold. And it wasn't just records. You know, Michael Jackson buttons and posters and you name it. And then you got bands like at that time that got really popular like Duran Duran. Um, and... It was it was actually a pretty exciting time um, for music, and and shortly after that, you know, you started getting, you know, really great record. Well, the Talking Heads were happening right then. There was this whole underground thing, you know, that that was going on in both punk and new wave, um, and there was all kind of new artists coming out, and there was MTV to that was promoting these new artists. It was like, oh, who's this Cindy Lauper character? And oh, there's Pat Benatar. And you know, there was there was a lot of artists whose careers just, you know, went through the roof at that time. Mm-hmm. And that was right around the time that they started manufacturing CDs as well, right? Yeah, CDs. The first CDs we got, well, from Sony. We had to buy um, like a mystery box, and it had a whole bunch of stuff in it. You knew it had Michael Jackson in it, 
But in order to get Michael Jackson, you had to get some classical stuff and some jazz stuff and, you know, some Barbra Streisand in there. And It seems weird. It seems like they would want you to sell it. So why give you stuff that you can't sell? They had limited amount of titles that they had. And they, you know, if you wanted to get in the CD business, this was, was the way they were going to do it to you. But what, what was the general consensus amongst you and other professionals and experts in the industry? Did you think that CDs were going to happen? Or were you like, this is a waste of time? Um, at, the, at the time, I, I was okay with CDs happening. But I never wanted to see vinyl go away. And I can remember sitting with a friend in 1986. And I go, Eric, I think vinyl is going to be gone within 10 years. And he goes, oh, no, it's not. There's 2.375 turntables in every household in America. And there's this many records in each household in America. And he had all these statistics and stuff. And... I go, no, I think it's going to go away. And what happened was those major record companies forced it away. Because a lot of business, there was a lot of record stores in shopping centers across the United States. Um, there was music lands and, you know, Sam Goody's and all these different stores. And... When they went to talk to them about CDs, they weren't bringing them in because they already had two configurations in this store. They had cassettes and they had vinyl. And in about uh, 1986, the big record company said, CDs are here to stay. Vinyl is going away. So all those chain stores returned all their vinyl. I mean, there was a mass exodus, and then they brought in CDs. So in a matter of a course of a year, CD sales going through the roof, vinyl sales diving down into mm -hmm. the deep sea. Mm -hmm. And, you know, by 1989, there wasn't hardly any new vinyl coming out from the majors at all. Now, a lot of the little independent rock labels, they continued it. And they, many of them never got out of it. Um, and they, they kind of kept it alive in there. Um, but a lot of record stores didn't have vinyl sections in them anymore. Mm -hmm. We always kept a vinyl section. Um, we couldn't get that much new stuff, but we always kept the used stuff. Um, yeah, because wasn't the argument, obviously they wanted to sell more product and they could get you to repurchase things you already owned in a different format. You already owned Led Zeppelin on vinyl, but now you can buy Led Zeppelin on CD. And wasn't the, the major selling point the sonic fidelity? It's the best thing you've ever heard. And you, you, you couldn't scratch it. Yeah. I mean, that those were... It was portable, it, you know, unless you threw it around and stuff, uh, the sound was going to be good for you. You weren't going to get the pops, you know. Oops, I took the needle and went across my record here, and now it doesn't play. And uh, 
a lot of people, a lot of consumers got rid of their record collections <laughs> and went to CDs. You know, the music, the real music freaks like me, you know, you kept your vinyl and then you just continued with CDs. Yeah. Um, if you put a vinyl in my hand and you put a CD in my hand uh, and says, you can have this or that, I would always pick the vinyl. Mm-hmm. Um, though there are some great sounding CDs out there. And, you know, there's there's a lot of CDs out there that still have never seen the light of day in the new vinyl renaissance of coming out. So, um, you know, CDs, they're a good format. Um, I don't want to diss them in any way. But vinyl, there's so many great things about vinyl. So vinyl wins. Yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> I'm with you. So then you're, you're over there at Music Millennium in the 80s, and uh, the, the CD revolution happens. Lots of places start getting rid of, rid of their vinyl, but you guys keep all of yours. And throughout these years, there must have been an increase in CD and cassette purchase, but you guys were still selling a lot of vinyl? We were selling a lot of vinyl, but <clears throat> it was all based on availability. And when vinyl went away, it made it really hard to do much business in vinyl. Um, so... Most of the 90s was was a kind of a wasteland. We had a vinyl section in our store, but it was much smaller than it ever had been before. Um, and, it, you know, the, a lot of people were forced to go to CD in the ultimate end there where they would come in to get a new release by an artist and it wasn't on vinyl. So... Yeah, to me, it kind of seems like the whole, whatever generation you're in, you don't want to be associated with what your parents were doing. <laughs> and that's a good way to be like, oh, this is for the, this is for my parents. This is for the fuddy-duddies, you know? They're listening to vinyl, but we're buying CDs, you know? Yeah. It's like a way to differentiate yourself from the previous generation. So I could see how how that would happen, which is so crazy that it does the 20-year cycle and now vinyl's cool again. It, it, it is. And uh, <clears throat> the one thing I saw <clears throat> happen with vinyl is vinyl started its renaissance in 2007. I started this group in 1995 called the Coalition of Independent Music Stores as kind of a support group for record stores in non-competitive cities, uh, hoping that these stores would share ideas with each other to make them stronger to go into the future. Um, At that time, uh, a lot of big box retailers were using uh, recorded music as loss leaders to get people in their, their stores to buy appliances and clothing and anything else. Um, so they were selling them below cost in many, many ways because they liked music because it came out every week. There was new releases. Every Tuesday there was new releases. So, you know, a new Billy Joel record comes out, you know, it's going to bring a certain amount of people into the store. So they would put them in their Sunday circular that Billy Joel's coming out this Tuesday and then a bunch of people would come in to get Billy Joel 
and they would hope that they bought some other things in their store at the time. But that all of a sudden, customers were going, oh, you must be ripping us off because, you know, Best Buy and Circuit City are selling these things at this price, and you're selling them like 5 or $6 more. You're ripping us off. So um, a certain amount of independent stores were having difficulty out there doing business, and they were going away. And that was one reason I started the coalition. And uh, out of that, two other coalitions started up. And in 2007, uh, we talked about going to the industry and starting this day called Record Store Day. And uh, we did, and we went to the majors and asked them for some compelling product on vinyl um, that we could sell in our stores. Nobody else cared about vinyl at that time. So What year is this? This is 2007. 2007. So the first record store day was in April 2008. And... There was 50 titles made on vinyl for that first record store day. And we hired a national publicity company to go, hey, there's this day coming up called Record Store Day. But there's also 1,800 record stores left in America. We haven't gone away, which the media had really painted a picture that record stores were either gone or on their way to be an obsolete and it was very successful and i mean this last record store day in the spring uh there was almost 300 releases what were what were some of the first 50 in 2008 oh you had to ask me that question were, i mean I, were, were they bad or were no they were really great records cool. yeah i mean um you you got unreleased records you got records that had been out of print, you know. Since, That's cool. Since the '60s or early '70s, so this is the first time you'd been able to get on vinyl. Um, there was a few colored pieces of vinyl at that time. Those are the coolest. Yeah. No, it 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 it, it was a really great thing. Now there's also. Uh, a record store day Black Friday, and it has a lot less releases. But uh, a couple Fridays ago was Black Friday record store day, and for us it was very special mm -hmm. because in 1999 Joe Strummer played our record store, and for everybody listening, who's Joe Strummer? Joe Strummer was from the Clash, and he was doing his solo career at that time, and it was the first time he'd ever played in a record store. We got him to play in our record store. Wow. And it got recorded, and two Fridays ago, Joe Strummer, live at Music Millennium, came out around the world on vinyl. Nice. That was really a cool day. That is cool. Nice. In 1989, for the 20th anniversary of Music Millennium, I was trying to think of something to do. And I was talking to Don McLeod, who was still the majority owner at that time. 
And I go, why don't we do 20 straight days of live music in the store? He goes, where are you going to do it? And I pointed up at a mezzanine, and he goes, well, that might work. So we went into looking at renting a sound system for 20 days. And in the process, they decided, why don't we just buy a sound system? So we bought, bought a sound system, put it in the store. I ended up with 40 straight days of live music from all the local artists that wanted to play. And at that time, Tower Records was in town, and they would once in a while get a giant autograph session in their store with you know, somebody like Dio or, or Devo. And uh, I tried to get autograph sessions at our store but they didn't seem to be that interested in it. So we were still coming back from the dead at that time. And um, so I started approaching labels and management companies about having artists play in the store when they came through on tour. And since that time, we've done over four and a half thousand live appearances in the store. Over 4,000? Yes. That's a crazy high number. We've had Soundgarden. We we had Soundgarden on the release day of their first A&M record, Louder Than Love. We had Randy Newman in 1989 do his only ever in-store, and he sang Happy Birthday to, <laughs> to the store. Nice. Um, we've had Steve Earle five times. He's flown in from New York just to play the store. And then went back. Huh. Um, it's it's been a very exciting thing. Well, yeah. What was it like in the early '90s with everything that was happening with grunge and and the alternative scene? Because that was arguably the most exciting time in Portland music in the Portland scene with Everclear and uh, Elliot Smith and all that kind of stuff that was happening. Uh, Soundgarden, Nirvana, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, you know, the guys from Monkey, uh, they were doing a lot of shows in town and they always tried to put a local band on the bill. So they were, they were putting the Elliott Smiths on there and the Dandy Warhols and, um, the Everclears on the bill. And they were also bringing down some people from Seattle. I must've saw Soundgarden seven or eight times as as an opening act, you know, at the Pine Street Theater, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, it it was very exciting here. There was bands like the Dharma Bums, um, you know, which was one of my favorite live bands at that time, mm-hmm. and the the. The music fans in this town were going out and supporting those things in a big way. We had clubs like the Satyricon and the X-Ray Cafe, um, the Blue Room. Pine Street, which turned into La Luna. Yeah. Yeah, I had Sam Coombs come and hang out with me uh, from Quasi, and he, he was friends with Elliot. And uh, yeah, I was asking him about that whole scene. The I think it was Monday nights you could get into... Pine Street, which became La Luna for like a dollar or three dollars, yeah, and that that broke a lot of those those bands. Yeah, Sean Krogan was working for us, and he was one of uh, Elliot Smith's best friends. So 
Elliot would come by the Northwest store a lot and say hi to Sean and mm -hmm. shop. And yeah, I remember when Elliot got signed to Geffen Records and uh, we got to do the in-store, you know, and it was like, oh, local boy makes good, you know. It was it was really cool to see see that happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was a special time in Portland for sure with everything that was happening. Uh, it It's so interesting to me how popular music shifts and what people are consuming changes. And for a long time, I mean the 90s and the early 2000s, it was more rock-oriented. And now I, it doesn't feel like that is quite as popular as it used to be things just shift and that was that was a really cool time period in this area yeah it was and you know it followed a really great time period of the 80s too the 80s were really happening in portland there used to be a thing called the mayor's ball and it was held at the memorial coliseum and the coliseum had all these side rooms and in it so you could go down there to the mayor's ball and there would be 12 bands playing at the same time one over in this room, one over in this room. This might be a jazz band. This might be a punk band. Um, you know, this might be a country band. And it gave people an opportunity to see all the the different bands that w would play out in the clubs mm -hmm. in our town. And um, out of that, um, some bands got signed from our our area. I mean, they, they did a really great job of inviting you know, A&R people from labels up. And, you know, there was bands like the Dan Reed Network got signed. Uh, you know, Johnny and the Distractions got signed during that time. Quarter Flash, um, their manager went down to L.A. at that time, started beating on doors and got them a deal. They were actually Seafood Mama at the time. And when they got signed the deal, the label wanted them to change their name. And they became... <laughs> That's such a cool name. Well, you know what? It's such a cool name. Geffen also signed John Lennon at the time. Huh. And John Lennon wanted the Seafood Mama name. He thought it was so cool. <laughs> yeah, I've never heard that before. That is a cool name. Seafood Mama. Uh, okay, so so we're up into the 90s, and then I, I wanted to ask you about what it was like when the whole Napster, uh, iPod, Apple Music, or I guess it was iTunes back then, what, what was that whole thing like? Were, I mean, did that, more than anything that had ever happened, did that actually scare you that you might go away? It, we knew it was going to have some impact. And to what degree, we didn't know. But there was already a great group of people across the country that were rebelling against the price of CDs at that time, which had inched up to 1998 list price on new releases. And, you know, people that were in the know that knew how much it cost to manufacture a CD goes, you're ripping us off. Um, they weren't they weren't considering all the different factors like marketing cost and um, distribution cost and 
all these other things that happen, radio promotion, you know, you name it that goes into a CD, you know. But there was artists like Madonna selling, you know, millions and millions of records and you too selling millions and millions of records. And they go, you're making too much money. So when Napster came along, this group of people immediately were out there trying to get the word out to everybody. You can get music for free. You can get music for free. Why are you buying it? You can get it for free. So Napster started taking off pretty fast. And the record industry um, rebelled against it. And instead of trying to work with Napster, they, they did everything they could to try to get Napster to shut down. And so there was a certain amount of people that might have been sympathetic to the industry, but there was a lot of people that weren't so sympathetic going, hey, you know, screw you. You guys have made enough money. We're going to go this direction. And what happened in that whole debt decade of that you know the first decade of the 2000s was um a lot of people were getting music for free and a lot of young people especially they grabbed on to digital music uh, because they didn't have to pay for it so record stores out there all of a sudden one of the lifeblood of record stores throughout history has been young people and young people would come into the record stores and, and, you know, later on in life, they may drop off of going to the record store. But during their teens, that was part of a ritual. You go with your friends to the record stores, you get records, and, and you do this thing. And they weren't coming to the record store. So we weren't getting any new customers, and our older customers were dying. So... <laughs> <laughs> Um, our, our, our amount of customers we had kept shrinking. Yeah. Um, in the year 2000, there was seven and a half thousand record stores in America. And in 2007, there was 1800 left. So there was a, you know, you kind of equate it to when the automobile came around, you know, what happened to the buggy whip maker? Yeah. You know, I mean. Horse and carriages, that whole thing went away. And uh, uh, there wasn't really a, a big need for that by a lot of people. Well, that's what's so impressive about what you're doing in that from 1972 to 2022, there have been four or five musical revolutions. And you have essentially been doing the same thing, selling music in person to people you have beaten every single one of those challenges it's it's been a challenge you know many times it was like i can remember walking out in front of the store about 2006 and going well if this isn't a record store someday you know this could be a really good bar restaurant uh with a music motif to it and people could come down and talk about the good old days when they used to buy vinyl <laughs> yeah. and, and reel to reel tapes and all that kind of stuff but we had to make a lot of changes you know anywhere from 
downsizing staff to looking at, you know, other items to put in our store that helped our profitability um, and made it more interesting for customers to want to come come back. Are you getting your employees to upsell to stereos? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's interesting is, you know, when, when vinyl was around in the very beginning, Music Millennium didn't carry stereos. Um, we do carry, you know... Uh, a dozen different models of turntables. You should. Yeah. And we do carry speakers. Uh, so <clears throat> if you get a Bluetooth turntable and a couple speakers, you can go over and get some records and go home and you're set. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, you would probably prefer to just sell vinyl, but you have had to adjust and change and, and make sure that you can keep the lights on. And yeah, and when vinyl started coming back, people were going, where do we get a turntable at? Yeah. There wasn't that many places selling mm -hmm. turntables at that time. So I started scouring the internet to find out. Yeah, I the first time I got a turntable was, uh, I want to say... 2006, 2007, I couldn't find one in a store. I had to buy one. I think I got it off eBay and it was some piece of shit that was like 30, 40 years old that they sold in like a Sears catalog. <laughs> like, like it was terrible. And I had that for a little while. And then you could finally start to see them in stores. Cause yeah, they just, they didn't exist. No, no. I mean, if you look at, you know, culture in general, I mean, you know, TV shows, movies, and stuff. For for years, you didn't see a turntable in any of these things, and then all of a sudden, it became fashionable to make sure you had a a turntable in that room on that set for that TV show or in that particular scene in that movie. Um, and you know, this NAS CDs are having their problems staying alive. Um, you know, the American automobile uh, manufacturers, they're not putting CD players in cars anymore. No, no reason to. Everybody's got a phone. You just plug your phone in. Yep. It's a pretty good system. Not going to lie. Using the Apple CarPlay in your car. It is pretty convenient cool. for people. But you know what? You know, I get asked a question about Spotify and, you know, the listening and... uh you know, I think Spotify is a lot of people's radio. And they go out there and they listen to this. And they hear something they like well enough, <clears throat> they'll go down to the record store and pick it up. And it was no different than when I was young and people heard songs on the radio. You know, they might hear a song, a certain amount of them would go down there buy that seven inch single mm -hmm. maybe a few people would buy the album then there would be a second song on the record that came out later on if it was really good then a lot more people started buying the the album somebody bought the single but if you got that third single and it was like really good then all of a sudden you saw that album moving up the chart um because everybody knew that that was going to be a good album. There's at least three great songs on there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll still buy, I probably have 50 or 60 pieces of vinyl, 
And the ones I really enjoy buying, like we were talking earlier, are the the really important box sets that you just get extra stuff. Like every time Radiohead puts out an album, I'll just buy the vinyl because it comes with the cool package and it's got like a newspaper thing that folds out. But what usually ends up happening is I don't play the vinyl because I want it to maintain value. <laughs> so that's kind of like this weird disconnect. It like turns into a collector's item, you know? Well, you know what people used to do back in the 70s? They would either have a reel-to-reel player or a cassette player, and they would get their new piece of vinyl, take it home, listen to the vinyl, and record it at the same time, and then put the vinyl away, and now listen to the vinyl, and then listen to the tape. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and cassettes are so bad. I think that's the worst way. I had this friend who was a really cool uh, musician, and he was like in the underground. He was like on all the coolest, hippest stuff that was happening. And he's like, yeah, we're getting ready to put out our cassette. And I go, what? <laughs> Why would you do that? You could put out vinyl. You could put out a CD. You could put out digital. You're going to put out a cassette. And for whatever reason, this was probably like... 2012, you know, somewhere in there. It was cool at that point. And it uh, sounded so stupid to me because cassettes suck. Um, cassettes have been coming back. Yeah. There's a there's a certain amount of people. It's not big, you know. It's it's under one percent of our business, but we we sell cassettes. I looked at it yesterday. We sold, you know, 10 new cassettes. I mean, there are labels like Sub Pop in Seattle. They put almost every one of their releases out on cassette. And there's a certain amount of people that's got to have them. You know, like cassettes are like pork is to chicken. They're the other white meat. Yeah. Well, what happens when 8-Track comes back? Oh, I don't think you're going <laughs> to see that happen. But we do have some 8-Tracks in the store. And, you know, it's really interesting. We, we put... Uh, VHS section back in the store too. And there's people that go out. There's a certain amount of them that's like, yeah, those are really cool. I got to have those. <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it just becomes nostalgia, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, most people don't care about quality. They're not, unless they're like some hardcore audiophile, they're not getting vinyl because they think it sounds better. They're getting it because it's cool. You're, you're correct on your statement about quality and you know especially when people got music for free um quality went out the window and it was interesting to see that you know throughout my entire life i've been around a lot of people who kept trying to get the better stereo equipment get the better sound and then it got to digital downloading and it was like that all went out the window Mm -hmm. it was like you know People were listening to them on things that didn't have good speaker systems and stuff, but it was free. Yeah. Yeah, I, I used to have this friend who would install super high-end stereos for rich people, and he'd be putting in $100,000 speakers so that people could listen to, I don't even know what they're listening to, maybe SACD, Super? Yeah, Super, super Audio Super CD. Audio CD, probably something like that. And to me... I would just be like, can you hear that? Can you really? Like, I would love to hear a $100,000 speaker next to like a $1,000 speaker. Like, obviously, it's going to be better than a $50 boombox. But 
I've had the opportunity, and in some cases, you can tell a big, big difference. Yeah. Um, but in most cases, you could spend a lot less money and get great sound. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, what is your preferred method? Vinyl on really nice speakers? Yeah. Vinyl on really nice speakers. And once in a while, I'll get together with some people and we, we do these listening things. We call them sessions. And everybody brings records over and you take turns playing a song. We don't play full sides, though we've talked about it, but it gives everybody a chance to turn people on to different things from their past. And it's, it's one of the most exciting things I can do is to sit with music enthusiasts and listen to records. Yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. Have you ever heard Dark Side of the Moon in Quad? I haven't heard it in Quad, but Quad was an interesting format. Um, you know, we had a Quad radio station in Portland back in the 70s. How would you even listen to it? Well, you had to have four speakers going. It was called KQIV. Yeah, but coming in... FM through the, I, it it didn't last. So, hmm. I, you know, most people couldn't couldn't tell. Um, but then there was quad eight tracks, and there was quad records that came out at that time too. And actually, quad eight tracks were pretty cool because I could take a Jeff Beck quadraphonic eight track, and you had four channels, so you could turn three channels off and get rid of everybody and just hear the Jeff Beck oh, guitar parts. Wow. Or you could turn three of the channels off and hear Cozy Pals drumming. So if you were, you know, if you were trying to learn how to play drums, you know, this quad eight track uh, was pretty cool. You know? That is cool. Yeah, there's, there's some videos on the internet uh, with Butch Vig soloing tracks from Nirvana, Nevermind. That's uh, fascinating. And then also, did you watch the Rick Rubin with Paul McCartney thing? Oh, yeah. I yeah. think it was three-part, and mm -hmm. it was on like Hulu or something. And I think Rick Rubin is an incredible guy. I don't think he was the right person to do that with McCartney, but they were soloing tracks, old Beatle tracks. They, they soloed the bass track from, oh. I think it was uh, While My Guitar Gently yeah. Weeps. Yep. It doesn't, you can't, I'd never heard that before. And I was like, there's no way that's the bass track in that song. It doesn't even sound like it belongs with it. No, It's crazy. No, but it works, you know. The Beatles, man, they, they changed the whole music landscape. Mm -hmm. With every record they made, they, they just, this is what you can do now. And this is what you can do now. Oh, we got some new things you can do now. It, well, yeah, and with the competition that they had with um, Beach Boys, what's his name? Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson. Yeah, that Brian Wilson would put out something, and then uh, McCartney and Lennon would try to make it better, and then he would try to make another, and they were just bouncing back and forth until the dude lost his mind. <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What a what a competition to be in, <laughs> you oh. versus Lennon and McCartney. No, it's not gonna work that's, out. That's that's a high level to try to obtain. Yeah, yeah. That whole decade is so fascinating to me that that people could produce that stuff. That I I didn't listen to the Beatles for a long time until like my parents 
never ha- listened to it. I grew up like on 80s butt rock, you know? And when I found out about the Beatles, I was already like 18, 19, 20. And then I just got to discover all of it as like a young adult. And all of that stuff, even if you don't like the Beatles, even if you don't like the Stones, even if you don't like Hendrix, Janis Joplin, The Doors, all of that stuff that happened influenced whatever you do like. It definitely did. It couldn't, the 80s couldn't happen. The 90s couldn't happen without all that stuff that happened in the 60s. That was so important. And they were stealing stuff. Like uh, Jimmy Page is a perfect example. Him and Robert Plant were stealing stuff from the what? those uh, blues guitarists in the 30s and 40s. They're ripping off their songs. That's what everything is. Everybody's just like taking pieces of what they like that has come out previously and like making it better. Yeah. Yeah. I think Warren Zevon said about <clears throat> 30 years ago that everything in rock and roll that can be done has already been done. So we're now doing variations of stuff that has happened before. Mm-hmm. Well, there's only so many patterns that you can... I mean, unless you're like Frank Zappa. There's only so many patterns to to modern music that are appealing that people want to listen to. I've, I've talked about it many times in, in this podcast, but there's this really cool video on YouTube where these guys take this four chord progression and they play four or eight bars over and over and over again and they sing different lyrics from different songs there there are a hundred songs that have been written using that chord progression and it's so uh, emotionally appealing to humans yeah. people just keep using it yeah they just keep using it that I mean there's gonna be a song next year that uses it and in five years and in ten years there's only so many patterns and part of me is like maybe it's like some crazy spiritual uh caveman shit that we came up with a long time ago that's just like embedded in us you know and and definitely people like that rhythm that's been probably going for millions and millions of years yeah you know that drum and bass thing going together you know just yeah yeah music is incredible that you there's there's some things you can just hear and yeah i mean depending on who you were with or where you were at or if you're in a car driving to a party in high school or you met your girlfriend for the first time or your son was born or you're in a you're in the the lingerie section at target <laughs> like every time you hear a song you like can go back in time to all those other times that you listen to it it's so crazy that's the way my record collection is at home. Yeah. It, 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 it's like a timetable, you know. I, I can tell you what I was doing when I got that record. I can tell you what I was doing when I heard that record, you know, and where I was. and. Yeah. It's like a, it's a time machine. Time machine in your brain. That and smell. Smells pretty good, too. Yeah. Can't, can't, can't dis-smell. <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to wear Michael Jordan put out cologne in the 90s and I used I got a bottle of it for Christmas or something in like 96 and sometimes I don't know who's still wearing it but sometimes I'll catch a whiff of it <laughs> it's so crazy I'll be a 12 year old in sixth grade again I'm like no way <laughs> so cool okay uh well I think that's a good spot I just wanted to let you finish by saying uh 
Anything you want to say about about the store and what's coming up with the holidays? Oh, um, well, the store is going to turn 54 in March. Okay. And, uh, you know, we're, we're really looking forward to this next year. We're, we're hoping the COVID goes away and everything is as normal as it can be. Uh, we've been able to bring live music back in the store this last year. And, uh, uh, we plan to continue that going into the, in, into the new year. Um, you know, we, we, we love our stage in the store. It gives us an opportunity to, um, champion new bands in town. Um, Bands that are coming through. I mean, last month we had this band called the Mysterines from Liverpool, and they were amazing. They were amazing, and they, you know they're they're an electric band, but they played acoustic in the store, and they just sounded so good. You know, it's like somebody was saying, "Oh, they should make a record like this. This sounds so great." But uh, you know. Well, similar to the, um, I'm forgetting who you said it was, similar to the album that you recorded in store and put out. Joe Strummer. Joe Strummer. I mean, do you guys have capability to just record every performance? We do. We do. And we haven't recorded all our performances, but we've, we've, we've recorded quite a few of them. Uh, this isn't the first time we've had a recording come out. Um, the first recording we actually recorded was at our other store location on Northwest 23rd was Toots and the Maytals. And uh, they played acoustic that day, and they normally don't play acoustic at all. And when Katrina happened, I went to Toots and the Maytals management and asked them if we could put these five tracks out. And... Uh, we would sell it to independent record stores across the United States and all the proceeds that were made on the CD would go to the New Orleans Musician Relief Fund nice. to help them out in getting their instruments back because um, a lot of people lost their instruments during that time. Um, but now that the Joe Strummer has come out, I want to go into the vault and maybe hit up some other management people and go, Hey, you know what I have? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we've had some things recorded in the store um, that have never came out that were actually recorded by artists. Hmm. Um, I know one of the, the three Portugal Demand shows <laughs> that we did in the store, um, their artist management recorded it. Um, so you never know, something like that might pop up. Good bands play every show differently, and the energy can be different, and the crowd can be different, and the venue can be different, and so I think it's really important to record all that stuff, because you never know what you're going to get out of it, and if you have a situation like they're playing at your store, and you can put it out, and everybody's happy with it, that's really cool. No, it definitely is. You know, there's so many artists that I run into that 
don't even have any of their own recordings from the past. And, uh, you know, some of that, you know, their fan base would just love to hear some of that live stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, you take a band like the Grateful Dead, they were way ahead of their time. They were recording every single show that they did. And, you know, fans started trading tapes with each other. And a lot of that stuff is starting to come out on like record store day um, and even regular releases throughout the year. I mean, there was a, there was an organ performance um, that came out on vinyl and CD. Um, and, you know, the fans love that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yep. Cool. Well, I appreciate you coming out. Thank you, Terry. Great talking to you, Cody. Yeah, it was awesome.